From 11FS, I'm David Breer, and this is Fintech Insider News. This week, we bring you Robinhood's seven times unicorn valuation following their new funding round, Alibaba eyes US domination, and how do you tally up your goal? All this and much, much more on today's show. Welcome to episode 343 of Fintech Insider. I'm your host, David Breer, and I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, Mr. Simon Taylor. How's it going, Simon? Really good. Um, Had a crazy week and lots and lots of getting out and meeting clients, having fun. How about you? Uh, Melting. Oh, yeah. Almost literally melting. Yeah, it's very hot in London, if you hadn't noticed. It is. I mean, it's literally, what is it, like 37 degrees as we speak, which is uncharted territory. Parts of the UK had their hottest day on record. Yeah. My deodorant is just not made for these sort of uh, precarious situations. Ah, That's what I can smell. I am. All right. As always, we're not alone. We're joined by some lovely smelling people. Making their debut, we have co-founder and MD of Layby, Mr. Gary Roloff. How's it going, Gary? Good, thanks. And thanks for having me along today. No worries. Uh, And next up, we have Sam O'Connor, CEO at Coconut. How's it going? Very good. Very grateful for the air con. Never actually been more excited to be in a WeWork office. I feel like this weather is really on brand for you guys as well. It's great. (laughs) Uh, Actually, do you know what? I'm also excited to be here because I told my team that I was coming and they said, oh, you're finally fintech famous, Uh, much like (laughs) Will I Am. So uh, thanks for having me. Much like Will I Am. Well, we'll see about that one. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And somebody who's definitely, definitely, definitely not making her debut, it is Valentina Christensen. How's it going? Good. Nice to be back. Nice to see everyone. How are you dealing with the heat? Um, I'm actually really enjoying it because I've actually bought a lot of summer outfits at the end of summer last year, which I didn't really get to showcase. And I'm kind of getting them all out on a catwalk pretty much, like just doing changes throughout the day. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm stunningly wow. impressed by that. I have to say, <laughs> my, my, my three pairs of shorts on rotation just don't live up to that yeah. measure, I have to say. But uh, all right. On that note, let's get on with the news. First up, we have a story over on Reuters. This is Robinhood's latest raise. So trading startup Robinhood has raised $323 million, achieving a $7.6 billion valuation, which is a whole lot of money. So Robinhood said on Monday that it had raised $323 million and a new round taking that uh, big total up there. So the round was led by DST Global, with participation from investors including Rivet, which is fun to say, uh, and a bunch of other people. Um, $7.6 billion. Um, I can't help but just think like that's a very, very large number. And also players like Nutmeg have really just n- let themselves go. Right. The difference between a Robin Hood and uh, like even a Charles Schwab, like these guys have four and a half, five million customers, mobile only. Like the first generation of that like Nutmeg, Wealthify. Mm. Uh, well, sorry, that's unfair to Wealthify. They're probably arguably second generation. But the ones that are mobile only mm. seem to just have different kind of growth and maybe that's where they're at in the cycle from an investment perspective. Very true. What do you think, Val? I mean, last year at um, TechCrunch Disrupt, uh, their co-CEO said that you know they they were actively looking for a CFO because they they're targeting or getting ready to do an IPO. So obviously, the kind of you know a fund round or a fundraise within you know a year of the last one, obviously at a much higher valuation, that kind of implies to me that they're gearing up towards it. Obviously, the higher they did make was um, was later that year. Jason Warnock, who'd been with Amazon for almost two decades by that point, and he's he's their CFO. So they're definitely well prepared now. Mm. So interesting positioning, you think, for a, an IPO? Yeah, maybe? I mean, you know, you think back to when Monzo, um, kind of when they were looking for a CFO and they accidentally left in the job description on the website that, you know, you'll be doing an IPO in three years' time. 
time. Um, you know, normally when you kind of do a change of CFO, it's because you're going up to an IPO and obviously another fun round putting you at a, you know, 7.6 billion valuation. So um, all the kind of signs are there that it's quite imminent for them. Mm. What do you think? Yeah, first of all, I just want to say amazing brand name because, I mean, even Simon was saying he's going to sing to us uh, Robin Hood. So, and, and actually the, the, the founder story... Go on, story, Simon, do it. Robin Hood, Robin Hood. Right? Just go. get it out of your system <laughs> now. Is then we can move on, yeah. I think it like really plays well into the founder story of you know being around during the Occupy Wall Street movement and kind of thinking, well, actually, we're part of the problem here and we can start giving back to people. And I think the, the most compelling thing for me is just eliminating that kind of hurdle cost of of the commission to enable people who potentially felt maybe a bit nervous about you know going to a broker right and starting to trade it was usually the the kind of domain of the the pinstripes and and um embraces guys in in the city and i think that's really what's you know propelled them to massive success i mean somewhat like robin hood a little bit illegal sometimes, stealing money from people. Not that Rob, this Robin Hood have been stealing money, but they definitely had some problems with actually how they've gone to market, right? The idea of, was it a checking account or a savings account that they announced when they haven't actually run it past the regulator? So, I mean, that um, slightly... Um, rebellious. Rebellious like sort of streak, should we say, is, uh, is definitely in there, you know? But I think what's also interesting is that, obviously, you read so much about British fintechs, you know, trying to go over to the US, um, and they're obviously one of the ones that is that are trying to come here. They announced their plans back in January. Um, they hired, um, who was it, um, Vander Rutgers from TransferWise. Um, and they sort of said, you know, we're gearing up. They didn't have FCA approval then. So perhaps this is also a, a caveat that, you know, from an investor's perspective, you get your approval from the FCA and then mm. the money's coming in. Yeah. Or this is going to be a catalyst to help them get that approval. Uh, and they've started they something in the incumbents as well. So you see Charles Schwab and others and uh, JP Morgan are now starting to look at that subscription model where you pay a set monthly fee and then you get all you can trading activity throughout the month um, and then free trade have gone a similar way in the UK which would arguably be an equivalent and they're growing like crazy mm. at the moment uh, sort of 1% a month a week or something daft I think that like free trade is quite an interesting uh, concept as well because I think what's interesting to see play out is how like community becomes a kind of moat yeah and free trade have done the community thing really well in particular, um, and I'm I'm interested to see how that plays out for Monzo going into the US, for yeah. instance, and not having that. Um, Revolut doesn't really have a community as such, and, and Starling shut down their community. It's interesting as well that all of the all of the companies you just named, though, regardless of the community piece, solve a real customer problem mobile first, and sometimes mobile only. And actually, that's the one thing that stands out, whether they do community or not. Community is a superpower, but it's not the only superpower. Um, we've seen. You can throw Revolut in there as well. They have, and they do have a community around it. Um, but they, we're seeing all of these different ways to do it. But they all start with that beachhead. They all start with that one problem they solve. For Robinhood, it's like investing scary. Um, I don't trust this. It's overcomplicated. Free trade, similar sort of thing, but more of the community angle. With uh, Revolut, it's that best travel card in the world. Monzo, Starling, best everyday current account in the world. Like there's there's that thing that they do, and then they sort of expand from there. And that seems to be a consistent theme. 
Hmm. I mean, if you're free trade right now, what do you do? Like to your point, Val, you know, these guys are kind of coming over here. They've got a 7 billion valuation. Are you like quadrupling down on, you know, gaining market share right now before they get here? Or? Um, I mean, well, I don't know, because like with Revolut, right, they obviously had announced plans to to launch a similar sort of um, offering. Mm. And, you know, I, I know the team at Free Trade and they sort of said, you know, yeah, it's good. Like bring on the competition. If anything, it's just going to mean that more consumers are waking up to this this kind of way of investing. Um, and, you know, ultimately, the more players there are in the market, then hopefully, you know, we'll get a good piece of the pie. So they do have a great brand, Robinhood. They're, they're very well known in the US. But then, as you say, they have had a few, um, you know, challenges on the PR front. So, um, you know, that could, you know, they've got to really manage that um, this side of the pond. Whereas Free Trade have had, you know, so far a pretty squeaky clean reputation. Hmm. But well, they are earlier, right? The Free Trade has 35,000 customers in the UK. Robinhood, four, five million customers. Acorns, four, four million customers customers. Um, Acorns seems to have gone a bit of a different route. They're, they're more of the micro savings mm. every day into investments later. Mm. Robinhood is that sort of trading activity for, for consumers. Uh, so it, again, I just stand back from the whole thing and watch it. I loved your point though, Val, about uh, that this is US going to UK yeah. with a different beachhead. Uh, after all of the hullabaloo, that's a fun word, of the <laughs> UK challengers going to the US, it seems like fintech is going global. But also that if you are a fintech somewhere else in the world, probably your first place that you're going to go out where outside of your home market is surely has to be the UK mm. um, if you're going, you know, if, you, if you're a fintech. Mm. I, well, think, I think so. And um, particularly because of the regulatory environment, right? You know, absolutely. it's big, big, the uh, friendliness from a regulation perspective and I guess common language to a certain degree, uh, <laughs> you know, actually allows that import export really there. I mean, it's one of the reasons why Hong Kong's been such a successful next step for anybody from here as well. So are you going to say? I was just going to say um, that, that one of the interesting things, I think, is um, with, well, my, one of my questions about trading apps is kind of where does it go? Because actually we've not had a downturn since the advent of trading apps, right? And you're giving access to people who don't necessarily have a level of sophistication that they should have mm-hmm. or you know, testing how diversified they are and things like that. And so what I'm wondering is, uh, how does this play out in, in a downturn if everyone's sunk all their cash into shares on Robinhood? I mean, I think it's a, an interesting thing on, on a downturn, but actually is it provoking the wrong behaviour in consumers from an investment perspective? Because, I mean, just because everybody can buy shares every day doesn't mean everybody suddenly like, a, uh, you know, they're shorting stocks to kind of make profit type thing. Bizarrely, like me, Zoe and Jason were talking about this when we were coming back from Cardiff yesterday was, I mean, the best people who buy stocks, buy stocks and then leave them from as long as, almost forget about them mm. in order to ride out all of the peaks and the troughs that are eventually in the stock market to make some sort of benefit. Uh, and that's where actually like this type of behavior is, is more like cryptocurrency vibe. Like I wonder a lot if the Robin Hoods and the free trades are actually uh, slightly burnt, uh, you know, uh, Robin XRP buyers who well, are now Robin looking Hood for stability. Robin Hood did see a huge spike. I think it was Robin Hood when they added the ability to buy Bitcoin. Yeah. Um, and that they got a massive set of downloads. Revolut did the same. So that was a, a customer acquisition strategy that you worry about for consumers. Is it in the interests of consumers? And uh, there is a really fair question. And actually, uh, if you scroll back, uh, if you're listening to this podcast now, to episode 270, we actually did a wealth roundtable and we had the CEO of Free Trade, uh, Adam Dodds, on the show. And some of the other guests were cross-examining him on exactly that point. And it was interesting to hear the different views in the room. So that's a really key point you make. 
yeah, buddy, go watch the show. Like, well, there's, uh, there, there's also, um, and, and I know they've changed it recently, but I remember uh, when I was kind of researching this topic, I, I remember when I signed up for an eToro account when, when they did their, their Bitcoin derivative. And there, there was this option to uh, kind of follow other traders. And the way that they'd ranked the traders was basically like the, the highest performers over the last three days. So you've got these people like massively leveraged, just like shooting for the moon. And so people were kind of following those. And then when I went back in today, it was like much more kind of risk weighted yeah. and like a lot more controlled. And so it looks like the industry is coming around to this. Those, uh, those sort of uh, futures contracts and contract for difference platforms like eToro, like Plus. 500 have come under a lot of scrutiny from regulators in the last three or four years. Uh, you saw they, they advertise on with football teams quite a lot. They go after the punters and the gamblers. And and this that's really scary um, if, if that's your target market. I mean, explain the difference there as well for the listeners because, I mean, I didn't know this until you pointed it out to me, but with eToro, you don't actually own the thing, do you? Mm. Well, you they do offer you the ability to own the thing, but they also offer you the ability to borrow money effectively from them or a third party um, and have a contract that says if the price goes up, you can sell that contract and pocket the difference. But if the price goes down, you could be on the hook for a massive loss. So if you've got, a let's say, a two times leverage or a five times leverage, then you might have made two times your profit from the amount of money you spent. You might have made five times your profit. And we saw this originally with the FX market. But if you make a loss, then you've got two times your loss, five times your loss. And now you've got to find money that you didn't have in the first place to pay them back for something that you never owned. And so that's where it gets risky. If you're looking at a chart of someone over three days and they're at like mm-hmm. 10, 10 times ratio, it looks incredible and you follow. But actually, the next two days, they might be plummeting. I think it's fair to say free trade's quite different to that. It just offers um, stocks and shares you've heard of. Even Robinhood doesn't, as far as I'm aware, offer leverage. No, um, so from the consumer responsibility side, it's there. What is interesting is that question about community and that collective sense of responsibility around education. Because historically, we said that unless you've, unless you're a certain level of sophistication you see this with crowdfunding platforms then you can only invest so much money and a certain level of sophistication either means one you've got a professional qualification or two you've already got a lot of money which you could be as smart as you want to be but you don't have a lot of money or any professional qualification and you're not allowed into the market there is something about financial inclusion that these fintech apps are trying to go for but it's always balanced with responsibility there you go. All right. We could probably talk about this one for many a, many an hour, but mm. let's uh, let's maybe move on to the next story then. So next up, we have one over on uh, In The Mirror, which does not get a lot of shout outs on this show, but uh, Great British Banking Switch. So this is 255,000 people ditched their bank accounts and have moved on to some other people. So five banks each saw tens of thousands of customers ditch them uh, for their rivals in the past three months alone. Uh, so the latest figures show that between in April and June alone, more than 250,000 people quit there, with most of them, from a winner's perspective, looking like it's Monzo and Starling, which, I mean, we sort of joked about this, I think, on Slack earlier on to a certain degree, where it's like people were sort of saying, you know, uh, prepaid card will never catch on, and then they'll never get a banking license, and now it's like, you know, you'd never get people to actually switch to it. But the reality is this is happening yeah, I mean, I think um, obviously kind of two things. So one is, you know, Monzo in the last quarter, they've obviously launched their TV advertising. And I think they said that that led to a doubling in the number of account openings. So now it's, I think, 250,000 a month, I think it was. I think it was. 
Yeah, yeah so, they did 250,000 in that month. Fine, right? okay, yeah. fine. So, you know, pretty pretty high. I mm. mean, obviously, um, at Oak North, we partnered with Monzo earlier this year, whereby we offer our savings products to them via in the app to the customers. So from our perspective, the more customers they have, the better, because um, the partnership is going very well. But um, that was when they had sort of just shy of 2 million customers. So if it's creeping up by a quarter of a million a month, that's great news That's something <laughs> that you wouldn't have seen historically as much. Like incumbent one would do really well if incumbent two did well. That didn't happen. But challenger one doing well if challenger two does well is, is kind of an interesting model. What, what struck me about this is there were two really interesting charts. It says bank accounts people are leaving the fastest, in other words, closing their banks. And, you know, you see some not big surprises there. Um, TSB cooperative, they've had a lot of bad press. Maybe there's some reasons there um, that, that that would be the case. Um, but bank accounts people are moving to, yes, Monzo, Starling, but also Nationwide, uh, First Direct from HSBC, but not HSBC itself, uh, and NatWest as well. So people that have invested time and effort in their brand uh, have also picked up some accounts that the thesis that there is some frustration out there with some of the incumbent experience, but also brand, I think is probably fair. Mm. But this is a very different set of numbers to the current account switching service, which often gets reported by the mainstream press. And if you're not familiar with that, that's this service that we have in the UK that you basically tell your bank, I want to switch to this other bank. And then in theory, both banks should figure out all of your monthly payments. They should figure out uh, your weight. Like, it should be like an end-to-end service. It never actually works that way, but it, it should be the case. And people were looking at those numbers and seeing, well, like net-net banks were gaining and losing 5,000 customers a month each because nobody used the current account switching service. This is people leaving versus people coming in the door. And if I'm an executive, like, what what should I be taking from this, David? What, what, what's your insight here? Uh, I mean, I think it's probably quite connected to, I guess, a sub-story around this is like, the people who are now starting to come out ahead on customer experience and NPS uh, in the the next story on over on Finextra uh, is Monzo and Starling. Mm-hmm. So if the people who are now coming out best for treating customers fairly or uh, net promoter score in terms of the the recommendations that people would actually make uh, sort of out there in the the real world are the people who are actually people are moving to, yeah. then that seems like a good sort of cause and effect, doesn't it? Like virality is a thing. Yeah. Who knew? Um, what do you what do you think, Karen? Yeah, look, I've been interested in um, the whole banking scene in the UK since moving here last year, and the thing for me is that it's very difficult to open a bank account in the UK in the traditional banks. It's, it's not easy at all. Mm. With these new new banks, it's very very simple. And our younger son is over here with us, and he has a Revolut account, and it was a very simple exercise for him. Our bank account with a more traditional bank because we were starting the business at the same time was just a nightmare. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's just not easy. Yeah. And, and well, I think the, that's why these guys win. Well, that's the thing. The, the friction in that system within traditional banking, like even if you wanted to move to them, just the time period, that would the pain that would be involved in it is just crazy, isn't it? Oh, look, it's, it, it is crazy because the international bank we went with actually has a presence in New Zealand, but even opening an account there wouldn't have assisted us opening an account in the UK. So there's, it, there are barriers. Yeah, definitely. Sam. One of the more surprising things for me about this is Triodos coming out. It's quite a big winner. And I think it's, for me, there's, a, there's a more of a trend here, which is broader than fintech. But I feel like there's this latent kind of 
guilt that people are starting to feel that, you know, whether it's your investments or where you put your rubbish is impacting the world at large. And Massively. So, and so that's really kind of reassuring to see that a brand that's pinned itself to, uh, you know, better outcomes for people and better outcomes for the planet is, is doing well. I think there's, as I wrote a blog post recently, ethical is the new luxury. Um, the consumer is expecting to see ethical in everything. And uh, the the old way of, older ways of communicating, the older ways of building user experience, the older way of treating your staff, your marketing, all of that sort of uh, supply chain and distribution, but also the manufacturing of your products, how the gubbins works inside the machine. People really care, consumers really care about, and that didn't used to be the case 15 years ago. Mm. And I think that's an interesting flip in consumer mindsets. And you can see this in everything from um, the, the, the cars that people want to buy, increasing demand for uh, electric cars. And you can see this in the clothes. People are moving from fast fashion to sustainable fashion. This is a macro trend that I think is broader than financial services. How many of you lot uh, take um, oat milk rather than real milk? Um, I'm an almond or a coconut milk kind of guy. Oh, wow. No, I do full fat cow milk. Mm. Oh, do you? Yeah. (laughs) Always with a blue lid. I'm big on on oat milk. That's doing it right, though, isn't it? Yeah. Like, if you're going to do it, do it. I'm from New Zealand, so what do you think? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So what I liked about this survey is... um, they, they surveyed 5,000 people, um, and the uh, Monson Starling had 78% and 70% of users saying their apps had lots of features and great usability. Of the incumbent banks, Barclays were topped with 57%. Um, so the, you, know, you can be an incumbent and still get up there. I think it is, it is possible. But Barclays have had a real focus on their digital user experience, and I think that's a, that is a differentiator. Like The app five years ago was a, was a channel. It was a thing that we had to do. Now it's a differentiator, I think. I, I still I still think in this sense though that there is a real skew. So like if you're uh, in a bank, uh, big bank user experience department right now, you're screaming at us while you're listening to this on the tube because you're like, we do so much more stuff. And like if you're a monoline uh, challenger bank doing monoline stuff, then actually your experience through an interface is relatively straightforward, relatively simple. You're a universal bank selling like 15 different products. Then inherently the complexity and like it's it's a lot harder thing to do and you, know? you have constraints on how your budget is set and and the technology stack that you have to work with and and th- so you these know sound like excuses i know no no but, but, it's it, like, but, but it is it like we've both been yeah, there I know. It, it, it's really really hard come here man give me a hug but uh-huh. i also think it's that you know you haven't seen that that innovation from the big incoming banks what you've seen is them doing the copycat of mm-hmm. okay now we're doing the gambling blockers now we're doing the um you know your ability to free you know freeze and defrost your card um, you know, they're, they're sort of taking some of the best bits of the bits that consumers like most about the challenges and then trying to replicate that in their own models. So much so that obviously you have some, you know, mess ups like that one, I think, a few, you know, a few months ago where actually, you know, Halifax was a Halifax and, yeah. and Monzo and sort of the FT picked it up. They tried to kind of copy their the look and feel of their and, of their and app. And they literally left an account number on front of a yeah. card that was a Monzo card. Exactly. Yeah. I just wanted to give a bit of a shout out to Nationwide in mm. in this survey because I think I'm glad you said Nationwide. I thought it was going to be like a family member there, and I was going to get I was like <laughs> we, we, I was going to get weird. Hi, mom. I mean, you yes. can do that. You can do that later if you want to. She's but. listening. No, because no, I, I I feel like uh, actually Nationwide is doing some really cool stuff uh, at the moment. You have got Lewis and uh, Russell kind of doing their venture mm. stuff. Um, and they you know they won the BCR fund as well. And I think one of the interesting things um, that. Uh, whilst only 40% of nationwide users said that lots of u- features and great usability 
were the the category that they picked, actually 95% of their reviews were positive. And that's the same as Monzo's. Mm. And so um, actually, I think there's an argument to be said for just doing the functional bits really well. Mm -hmm. And actually, when you're trying to steal a customer from someone, and if they're kind of just fine about it, it's like, you know, that's a hard customer to steal. And then with the additional stuff they're doing with business banking as well yeah. um, next year, I think that there could be something quite cool. They're net gaining mm. from doing other things well. I mean, not not in show notes, but Nationwide announced a partnership with ClearBank this week, didn't they? So yep. it's a, another sign that actually not just from an experiential sort of veneer level, but actually fundamentally down in the, the deep, dark areas of the infrastructure, they're doing super interesting stuff. Um, I should say, though, it's probably not all good news for Starling because um, if we move on to the next story, which is over on the FT, this is Starling loses four seniors in six months. That's not seniors like OAPs. That's senior people at their organization, just so we're clear. Um, so this is four senior executives. Where did they put them? I know, just, just walked off. Uh, senior executives over at UK Digital Bank, Starling, have left this year alone. So this is uh, kind of in the wake of Julian Sawyer, uh, the bank's chief operating officer, head of banking services, and actually a co-founder has stepped down this week. Uh, and this is kind of off the back of uh, Ben Chiswell, who was the product director, uh, Megan Kaywood, who was the chief platform officer who went off to Barclays, uh, and a couple of other people in this space. Um, somebody who was running uh, SME lending as well. So, I mean, is this... Uh, I think I talked about this briefly mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago about Monzo, actually. You know, are we getting into a cycle with the challenger banks where potentially equity is vested to a stage where people can just sort of leave without many repercussions and the thing that people join a startup for stops being, a, you know, the, that vibe when they get to a three, four hundred person organization? You know, is this a sign of the times or is it uh, potentially a, a, a bigger sign of a cultural problem? Well, I think the thing is, it's, you don't want people to stay because they're resting and vesting, right? You want people mm. to stay because they believe in the mission. I mean, you know, we're very, I mean, 50% of people at Oak North have, have invested their own money in the business, as well as obviously having, you know, a number of people have bonus shares or, or vested um, options. But we would never want people to stay because they're, you know, oh, I've got another two years left, so then I can kind of get out of here. And also, I think the point is that, you know, I don't know what the liquidity is for Starling, but I mean, even if you do vest, okay, fine. So you have them, you know, technically you have a certain number of shares, but can you do anything with them yet? Um, probably not. I mean, obviously, um, Ben Chisel came in and joined us and, um, you know, we're, we're really delighted to have him. He's a great addition to the team. The other thing actually that the FD reported on in April was that their CFO, Tony um, Ellingham, will be leaving within the next 18 months in quotation marks. Um, and so that will be that by the end of next year. So I'm that's with you on this, David. I think it's just where they're at in the cycle and a point of maturity. I think the FT covering it as a, a the headline, senior starling executives take flight. I mean, one, cheeky pun about a, a bird <laughs> leaving. But two, um, generally I find the more financial press um, tend to have, tend to look for the, editorially at least, maybe not the journals, look for the negative side of, and, and look, there's been a lot of great news about all things fintech. So I can see why you're looking for the other side of the story. That makes a lot of sense. Um, but, but maybe there's a bit of that going on too. I think there's, yeah, I think that, like, you know, generally speaking, shares are going to invest over around four years. So it's it's not necessarily surprising when people leave after four years. And actually, um, I think it's important to, you know, get some new people in for the next next phase. But also, you know, how can you blame people joining fantastic startups like Oak North uh, and seeing what's out in the market? 
Yeah, look, I, I think there's a couple of things at play here. I think the um, the war for talent continues and other players are looking for the most talented people in the market. So for people who have been part of a startup that is uber successful, then they're obviously going to be tapped. I think timing is, is very accurate. I also think a lot of people that go into a startup are quite entrepreneurial themselves. And at the senior level, they're probably seeing opportunities that they themselves can contribute in another startup type of business mm-hmm. or their own type of business. So, Four years is a long time in any company these uh, 100%, days. 100%. You know, and um, you know, I don't think it's a huge surprise that if succession planning has been done properly, it creates mm-hmm. new thinking. Um, a new dynamic, so yeah. So this guy isn't falling then. <laughs> I guess we are being very nice, right? Yeah, I was going to well, say like, well, let's the balance bits. this somehow. <laughs> I mean, I, I was, uh, yeah, I was about to get onto that. Um, so from my perspective, it's like startups are culture and talent. If your talent leaves, potentially your culture changes, and every every new hire or every person who leaves through the doors changes the culture of your organization. So I mean, I, I you know I fear that. I mean, Starling have been like head uh, like hell for leather uh. for three or four years um, sprinting, making it? stuff happen and actually you know you don't want to lose that mem- uh, momentum or the sort of impetus for change within the organization so i mean one thing's for sure is like Anne is like a terminator she will not be stopped therefore you know it wouldn't definitely isn't going to stop a very well-funded startup bringing in more smart people to continue the the the, the venture but i don't Personally, I don't think humans are replaceable in that way. I don't think you can just swap one in for another one and everything be fine. I think it's a um, a much harder task than that. I, do you know, I really like your point about, around culture because actually I think one of the more important things about culture is like integrity, right? And I guess the, the back story to this is there's a bit of bad blood with the whole kind of Tom Blomfield, Monzo at the beginning of Starling and then, you know, uh, people leaving now, but fundamentally... They've just taken in a load of cash and it's like slightly odd time to leave. But actually, you know, if you look at, say, uh, the Revolut culture, they're kind of unapologetic about the fact that you're going to come and you're going to work really, really hard and we're going to grow really, really fast and kind of there's some integrity in that, right? I mean, they're a bit uh, more apologetic now. Yeah, they, they are. <laughs> they, they are yeah. And I think to, to Revolut have done some really interesting things on the PR side in the past couple of months that I actually came across really authentic to me. The, the stuff they did around well. Pride and like that, that had to be authentic. Like just tone-wise, it was spot on. Absolutely. But also that's how they're, you know, I mean, just look at some of them, more recent senior hires, right? Richard Davies, um, formerly of TSB, um, you know, head of head of um, SME banking there. And I mean, you know, he's, he's obviously got, you know, a long um, track record in the banking industry. Um, so I think, you know, there's just kind of them showing we are, you know, growing up a little bit and, and um, hiring some of the, the people in the industry who are well-respected and well-liked. Mm. I, I think that's it. I think you, your culture is a reflection of the people you have. And, you know, like say people like Richard joining Revolut, you know, it's going to be fascinating to see uh, who Starling bring in to sort of replace these, you know, more sort of household names when it comes to the, uh, you know, people like Megan I'm not sure who's been replaced yet. So it's going to be interesting to see who sort of uh, who sort of comes in. Uh, moving on, though, uh, another sub-sub-sub story to this one is uh, Mojo Mortgages have teamed up with Monzo. So sticking on the Monzo theme. So um, Mojo Mortgages, an award-winning online mortgage broker, this is not an advert, uh, is testing a new feature with Monzo Bank to help homeowners find competitive remortgage deals. Um, we heard from Mojo CEO Richard Hayes. Do we want to play that now? 
Working with Monzo on this partnership's uh, been absolutely amazing. Um, I think for us and them, um, the way in which we could uh, deliver a native integration of this kind in only two weeks, I think speaks testament for both our team and their team. But fundamentally, we're immensely excited about how we could experiment with new ways of introducing remortgage products to Monzo's customers and try and really impact uh, the way in which they assess the total cost of a, of a mortgage product. There's a, there's a big gap in the market at the moment, we feel, whereby customers can overpay uh, by buying the wrong type of mortgage or doing their own homework and potentially picking the wrong mortgage. And so we were really keen to explore how we could present a customer with the true total cost of a, of a remortgage uh, and give them better insight into that true cost. Um, and we think the integration uh, that we did in terms of the experiment with, with Monzo has definitely achieved that. We were all really excited when Monzo reached out to us and, and asked us uh, the capabilities of our APIs and our partnership platform. And clearly after we had our initial conversations, it felt like we're really well aligned in terms of what we wanted to deliver to customers, but also what we were capable of delivering to Monzo in terms of a partnership and an integration. We hope that uh, in the future that we'll be able to start expanding this, this test out and these experiments out to to, to more different types of customers, initially focused on remortgage. So how can we offer experiences to joint applications? How can we offer experiences to uh, customers looking to raise additional capital? And then I guess more long-term, our hope is that as the, as the partnership progresses, we can, we can start looking at customers who are maybe a little bit further out uh, with regards to their, their mortgage or their home ownership journey and how we can really evolve that relationship too. Mojo's got some really big plans about how we uh, really evolve uh, getting a customer mortgage ready and uh, really excited to see to see how uh, that relationship evolves. What do we think? Uh, so testing, interesting. Um, Mojo um, uh, kind of, they're not unique um, in that they've, there's Habito, we had uh, the CEO of Trussell on the show recently. Um, but this is, um, of course, Habito integrated with Starling in 2018. Um, so it's interesting why people are picking different uh, different things inside uh, inside their apps. So I, I uh, this is interesting. I don't think anybody's using, I mean, anybody, terrible thing about statistics, sort of generalizing everybody into like a big bucket here. But I'm not sure people are using Monzo like a place where your mortgage gets paid for yet. So like something like savings makes sense. You know, actually I can see because surplus on a spending card being put into a, a savings account sort of makes sense to me. But I would, I would guess that it's very, 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 very low amount of Monzo users right now are actually having all of their utilities there and their mortgage there to even remotely benefit from this type of service. But I think also then it could be, I mean, it would maybe encourage some of the Mojo customers to, you know, open an account with Monzo. Yeah. Because if you look at going to Mojo Direct, I mean, they said it's sort of, if you go through their website, the remortgage process, you're answering about 60 questions. If you do it through Monzo, you do it with 11 questions because um, they can obviously verify your name, your address, you know, mm-hmm. who that you are, who you say you are, by the fact that you've got an account with them. So I think there's a convenience part to it. But I agree, obviously, you know, how many, what kind of demographic of their customers are remortgaging right now? I don't know how complicated the remortgaging process is, but I can imagine that just like anything in mortgages, it's probably not a walk in the park. So just answering 11 questions seems like a, a pretty like niche offering. Yeah, good number of questions. But isn't that exactly the point, right? So they had the, uh, we'll pay your salary two days early to try and lure people to pay their salaries in and then suddenly they're like actually we can help you get a really good mortgage i i think that that's a really interesting point and i hadn't thought about that i i wonder if 
people, how many people are actually moving household bills out of it versus putting their salary into it. Uh, so I'm a big user of the joint account. Um, Haley and I use the joint account for pretty much running all of the costs. And Haley just remortgaged, but did it out of another account, I think, and did it with one of the, I think it was Trussell Hall Beta, I can't remember which, as the front end. If this was in here, who's to say we wouldn't have done it that way? Um, so I do think there's a user base out there that does that, but then that's, that's my observer bias. Like I'm a, I'm a demographic of one. There's also, it's a, it's a subject that's quite close to my heart at the moment because um, we're just selling our house and kind of thinking about this stuff. And I've been talking to a mortgage advisor about it. And one of the most, I think this is one of the most dysfunctional areas of the mortgage market because what you end up with is if I roll forward the mortgage I have now into a new house, I end up on the top, top rate possible because they just edge up your rate mm-hmm. over time. And it's a little bit like when I was working at Virgin Media, you had these kind of legacy uh, subscriptions where people were paying hundreds of pounds and no one was going to go to them and say, you know, it's only 25 quid a month now. Mm -hmm. And when you go through that process of remortgaging, you you know, I could have saved like 0.5% a year, which is quite a sizable Mm -hmm. chunk. Mm. But I'm also interested in the the sort of the again the demographic because if you look at you know who would be typically remortgaging I mean and and you know the the factors that they take into account so the cheapest overall cost when you take into account fees cashback interest rates and actually if you're let's say in coconut and you're often you know going to be a, a freelancer or a, you know an, a, an entrepreneur it's going to be pretty much harder for you to get a mortgage and so it'd be nice to be able to see who are the providers who are going to be offering you something for you know an atypical source of income um, and. And if you're, you know, if you're, if you're, you know, not having a set salary each month from an employer. Foreshadowing an integration coming soon. Yeah. No, that's not, I'm not speaking on behalf of Coconut <laughs> or Oakenhold at that point. Right. What do you think, Gary? Oh, look, um, I'm not very familiar with the mortgage market over here, but maybe just to be a little bit provocative, the challenger banks that we see here, how many of them are profitable? I mean, you're sitting next to one. Of the most, yeah. uh, <laughs> so that's one. Yeah. Uh, but also what phase of their evolution are they at? How, how many years was it before Facebook was profitable? Google, Amazon was, was what, 12 years, 13 years? It was years? eight years. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, and no, also no. Amazon, you know, this kind of like, I am sorry, but I did test the big tech, you know, comparison. Amazon can get to hundreds of millions or billions of mm-hmm. customers. Facebook has 2 billion customers. What regulation in the world is going to let... Two billion people bank with the same bank. It's never going to happen. It's literally the the definition of a systemically important financial institution. So everyone needs to stop saying like, oh, but it took Amazon eight years to become profitable. Like they will reach a much bigger scale than most fintechs. Sure, but there are other incumbent banks that are losing money. I mean, Deutsche Bank lost a a significant amount of money. So I think the, the measure has to be balanced out. Right is is that other people lose money too, and where are they at in their cycle versus what their investors want? But the point is valid. Um, current accounts alone aren't the profitable product, and but in the mortgage market in the UK isn't particularly profitable mm. at the moment unless you're one of the top three or four lenders. So um, you know it's really being squeezed on that side too. Yeah, look, um, I'm going to side with Val here. I mean, um, it's it's, oh, it's always safest. Like, yeah, no, <laughs> well, we're sitting next to my neck out here. Like, yeah. <laughs> I mean. In my earlier career, I was in banking, and and so I'm clearly a lot older than the rest of you at this table. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, uh, a sustainable business has to be profitable, and I don't think you can compare a starter bank 
to a Facebook or a Google or whoever because at the end of the day, you're a deposit-taking organisation and you need to be profitable so that when your depositors want their money, they can actually get it. Deutsche took a hit for one year. They're an extraordinarily profitable bank. They're one of the biggest banks in the world. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something from someone from an older generation. I struggle getting my head around a bank that doesn't make profits. I I just struggle with it. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I think, I mean, I'm... I'm old fashioned in that sense. Businesses should make money. Like it just seems like a sustainable way of staying in business, doesn't it? You know, it's in the name. It, it, it does. Um, but let's judge them in two or three years because if they don't, then they'll be in real trouble. I think that's that's going to be the acid test. Well, and also think about unit economics. And so it, it, if they can make each account make sense now versus the loss they had historically, that's when things start to change. And then also think about the products they offer. Banks always saw uh, the current account or the checking account as the loss leader. If I can make the checking account profitable and then offer other things around it, then I start to get to a different place. But if you are a monoline around a traditional loss leading product, but you're then able to introduce and make uh, profit shares out of lots more products with a larger customer base, there's opportunity there. But I think even by their own admission, that model's not proven. And I think that's the killer point for me. I mean, Mons obviously in their most recent um, annual report, I mean, they did show they've, I mean, they've dramatically reduced the the, the cost um, per account and they're actually making, um, I think, three pounds for, for the customers who they consider to be fully switched, i.e. they're paying a thousand pounds into the account each month. So I don't know if that really counts as a, as a full customer, but their definition, as they said, but then obviously their customer acquisition cost has gone up because of the advertising they're doing. Yeah. And as a result, Tom Blomfield said, you know, they're going to have even bigger losses next year yeah and I, and I think it's I mean they're, they're trying to move into like the plus accounts setup and you know trying to sort of monetize in that way um, I mean I think it's it's going to be really interesting you know you've got a I think particularly in the Monzo sense you've got a bank that is set up to be very like ethical and very good therefore making money from people seems almost against their culture right now, which I think is something that they've kind of got to get through because I'm with you guys, like businesses should be making money, really. Um, anybody want to make any other points on this? Yeah. Like there was something at the tip of your tongue there, man. I think I think um, what what's clear is that if you're a deposit taker uh, and you've seen it with Starling and now Monzo, businesses hold more money, right? Uh, and so it's sensible to move into business Banking, I think uh, the way that we see it is that there's actually a huge amount of money in uh, that businesses spend on services like accounting and uh, accounting products and, uh, and and things like that. And so there's actually a lot more money to be made in that space than just lending, which is kind of where where we come into it. Mm. And so um, I think you know as the smart bank. Uh, for business ecosystem develops, that's a really great, great place for us particularly to, to make money uh, as well out of the accounting services and things like that. So I think there's there's opportunity there beyond just, just banking. Yeah. I mean, it, it's uh, in all slices of banking, it's moving to actually adding value. And I think at the point where you're adding value, people aren't uh you know sad about fees it's like that's a a good exchange at that stage isn't it but you've definitely got to be adding that value which is not really where traditional organizations are and and we've seen it with robin hood right they've they've been able to charge that subscription fee model and the hardest thing to innovate around is the business model so uh we've it's unproven i think Mm. that's my takeaway wow we went full circle like robin hood to robin hood in part one 
We'll be back after the break. This deal sets apart to a brighter future. We will leave the EU. Uh, clearly, the pressure is beginning to produce jobs. The more you hear about Brexit, the less clear it all becomes. When everyone else is shouting, listen. For the clarity behind the headlines, subscribe to the Financial Times. Visit ft.com. Today, customers are demanding greater value from financial services. They expect more agility, innovation and security than ever before. Most financial institutions are held back by the shackles of closed legacy systems that limit transparency, block innovation and ignore customers' demands. Finastra has a bold vision to unlock the potential of people and business. They've created a platform for open innovation in the world of financial services with FusionFabric.cloud. Their solutions span retail, transaction lending, and treasury and capital markets, on-premise and in the cloud. Start your transformation journey today with Finastra. Cybos, the world's premier financial services event, is landing in London's XL on the 23rd to the 26th of September. More than 8,000 decision makers and experts from across the globe will gather to shape the future of finance, and the opportunities for fintechs will be bigger than ever. Specially priced fintech tickets are available. Don't miss out. Book today at cybos.com. Welcome back to Fintech Insider from 11FS. If you really, really love this show, don't forget to pass along this podcast to a friend, a, I don't know, a relative, your mum, whoever really. Just a person in the street. Be yeah. like, hey, listen to this podcast. Do you know what? I did see a person in the street wearing a Fintech Insider t-shirt the other day. I just walked up, said, nice t-shirt. Guy's brain exploded. Yeah. Was, uh, <laughs> this is where I give a shout out to my mum. Go nuts, too. Who, who watches Fintech Insider. The nice. Listens to. Well, hello, to your mum, I guess. Yeah. All right. If you really, really do love this show, like your mum, then make sure you head over to iTunes and leave us one of those reviews. We had a really, really good one, actually, that came up. In fact, we've had a bunch of them come through recently. So this is a special shout out to uh, Missy Anna, who left us a really, really lovely review saying she was binging through the pod while on maternity leave. So I think she's hoping her daughter is about to absorb all of these CEO insights. So congratulations <laughs> on the new baby. Love that. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs> Congrats. All right, let's get on with the show. Next up, we have a, a story over on Finextra. This is 86400 wins Aussie banking license. So Australian smartphone bank 86400 wins its banking license. So this is Anthony Thompson, who formerly of Atom and formerly of Metro, busy, busy boy, um, has managed to get another banking license. What is that? Three now? That's Seems good excessive. going, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, he must like be going... Pokemon. Yeah, like like Guinness Book of Records territory right now. If he hasn't got that, he really, really should do. Uh, so the license means that 86400 will uh, launch with transaction and savings accounts uh, and will be able to take unlimited customer deposits as it has met the same regulatory requirements as the big four banks over there. Super interesting. So the Aussie market is uh, getting hotter and hotter. What do you guys think about this? Yeah, I mean, obviously when he, I mean, so uh, uh, for some people who might not know, Atom Bank was actually named after Anthony Thompson with 
know, Anthony Tom. Thompson Bank, exactly. Um, and funny enough, actually, uh, Metro Bank were my first ever client out of university, so they always hold a, a special place in my heart. And I got to work with Anthony Thompson. He was a, a sort of PR dream um, because he he really likes talking to the media. Um, but I mean, I, you know, as you say, it's really um, commendable. He's managed to get a third banking license now um, in Australia. And obviously with Atom, um, you know, they didn't end up launching current accounts. This would be an opportunity for him to do that because I know that, and I had him speak before um, at a university and he, you know, that was something that he really, really is passionate about doing and kind of the, all the sort of features you see in the Monsters, the Starlings, um, the Revoluts and bringing those to Australia, which is in dire need of some, some competition. Mm. I mean, I still say terrible name for a bank. Uh, <laughs> I'm like um, serial sort of bank builder, progressively worse bank namer. Like, uh, so uh, it's going to be interesting because it's just terrible SEO, isn't it? I mean, like being able to find it, just even buying the domain for that is going to be complex. But uh, I mean, if you do want to hear more from Anthony, who uh, was back on episode 320 of FinTech Insider, uh, head over there. Or if you would like to listen to um, some one of his other projects, Atom, uh, with the podcast that we had with uh, Mark, their CEO, and Will I Am, then you can jump over to episode 342 to hear more of that. Now on to another story, one of um, Anthony's ventures on this one. So this is Metro to replace their chairman. Did you deal with Vernon when you were at dealing with Atom? I did. And uh, Sir Duffield number one, the the dog that has its own Twitter account. Well, I have some bad news if you haven't heard, then Vernon is to be stepping down. So uh, the bank has now reached a size and scale where it's appropriate to appoint an independent chair, Mr. Hill said. So Mr. Hill, an American, set up Metro Bank to challenge the UK traditional banks uh, alongside Anthony back in the day. Super interesting. I mean, is it this interesting timing with everything that's been happening at Metro Bank? Is it they've got to a certain size and scale or is it a, uh, you know, given some of the complexities, given some of the challenges that they're challenging now that maybe different leadership is needed? Well, they did have the um, the accounting issue um, several months ago where they uh, ended up uh, accounting for their profits uh, incorrectly. And as a result, they got into a little bit of trouble um, and that re- shook some confidence in the bank. And uh, customers actually withdrew two billion of deposits over six months to June. Damn. And their half-year uh, pre-tax profits fell to uh, £20 million pounds for the, from the year earlier. So um, I think, will the leadership change make a difference is, is my question here. Um, it, it seems like they've done the branch model well. Uh, but they and they seem to have you know been one of the earlier we're going to challenge the establishment post financial crisis poster poster children um, but you know when we were looking at that report earlier of who's gaining accounts and who's losing accounts they, they didn't feature in that story and I think if you're not in that story and you've been around for uh, nine years now then there's some questions about you know how who who's going to come in and change this thing I've got a question about the branch thing anyway, because I think the the assumption behind rolling out branches is that people like to have a connection with somebody. But actually, having banked with Metro, the most useful thing I got out of the branches was being able to replace my card really quickly. But it still required a half an hour walk to the branch and then, Mm. you know, sit down for 20 minutes and go back. And and actually, if you're an online bank, you can just do it through the post, which is way more And most of the challenges will send it somewhere and it'll be 24 hours and they know that getting that to you quickly is a big differentiator. So, yeah. I think Metro customers, like, do love them. Like, Mm. there's a... um, 
you know, the, the sort of stories around the way in which they've uh, gone back to sort of traditional values with deposit boxes, those types of things. You know, that's an interesting sort of hark back to traditional values, but, you know, doing it in a slightly newer brand. But what do you think, Val? I mean, well, that was one thing that both Vernon and Anthony always went on about was creating fans, you know, not customers. And that is, and then that goes down into the messaging they use around everything. So they don't actually call them bank branches. They call them shops and they don't actually open them in any places that were formerly banks. So unlike Handel's Bank and where they buy, you know, a number of bank branches at a discount from bigger banks who are closing them down, Metro will always pick sort of prime central areas, you know, on the high street where there's going to be a large amount of that were previously actually shops. And therefore, you know, the, the time even to, to reach break even on each shop uh, is, is much longer than a handles bank and where it takes on average 18 months. Yeah, I, I guess the, the thing I sort of worry about slightly with them is like scaling. Because, uh, I mean, to everything that we've talked about with regards to the, uh, you know, the, the approach that the challenger banks are taking with the Monzos and the Starlings, where it's a, it's a race to scale customer base in a model where you're, I mean, it's very, arguably it's very similar to the inhibit, um, uh, inhibitors, that's probably the word I'm looking for, uh, of First Direct, where they basically made people feel that uh, telephony was the best way of getting the best customer service. A metro sort of conditioning people to think the branch is the best way to get the the best experience. Therefore, they can only grow as quickly as they can grow, uh, you know, the physical footprint. Yeah. yeah. I, and I think this comes back to that profit unit economics growth question, which is uh, they've definitely been profitable and continued to be profitable. Uh, and it's a, it's a nice little profit, but it's not really growing much from what we can tell. And certainly, maybe that's hampered by recent accounting issues. And you know, their customers do seem to to like them. But it's, it's your point, David, that maybe the game's changing a little bit. That that is intriguing. Half year profit. So Metro Bank half year pre tax profits of three point four million. That's sort of alarming, really, isn't it? Mm. When you sort of think about it, that a bank in the six months is only making 3.4 million pounds. Yeah, I mean, it, I think that's a combination of the sort of challenges they've had from like over the last nine months, really. But I think, you know, looking at the... The, they're sort of you can't really give a comparison of them versus the Monsters and the Starlings because their play is totally different. They did go to market with with bank multiples at the end of the day, yeah. whereas Monzo and Starling, despite being banks, albeit with very different models, have gone you know and, and have marketed themselves very much with a, a tech play and therefore getting tech multiples, which is why you're seeing the revenues in the Monzos with billion plus valuations. Um, you know when actually they're trying to be global banks as well. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's going it, to, and this is, I, I think, I mean, why this is so fascinating. You've got uh, banks mean so many different things these days. And actually, like, the the spread on the ways in which people are actually operating, the spread on the ways in which people are actually trying to engage with their communities or their customers is fundamentally so different in different players. And that, I mean... Uh, this show would be really boring if we didn't have all this stuff to talk about, right? Which is, <laughs> which is good. All right, moving on. Somebody who is definitely not worrying about how they scale is Alibaba. So over on Business Insider, we have Alibaba's plans for US domination continue. I feel like I should have said that in much more of a menacing voice, I have Mm -hmm. to say. Uh, So Chinese e-commerce giant Alibaba is coming to the US in a major way. Uh, Chinese e-commerce giant Alibaba is going after America's small business owners uh, with a spate of new digital tools designed to encourage domestic trade, uh, increase use Uh, U.S. participation uh, in a 23.9 trillion global B2B market. 
Dang, and that's a lot of people. All right, so the expanded program will provide 30 million American manufacturers with access to resources to help blah, 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 blah. Come on, Trump's going to shut this down, surely. Yeah, bingo. Like, amazing that Alibaba's announcing that they're going to the U.S. and servicing small businesses. They've done reasonably well, actually, through Alipay in Europe, uh, in the Nordics they're appearing, in, of course, in Australasia. The Alipay is, is fairly well established. Um, but I don't know how well in Australasia um, Alibaba as a, as a commerce platform has been established. I don't know if you know. Oh, look, um, more and more it's, it's gaining some credibility, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but the... Um, the Alipay is the more popular, yeah. as is WePay, because of the tourism that comes into New Zealand particularly. And the follow the tourist model has been established. But then I, I also think that Alibaba uh, will keep trying. They're not going away. They're making a massive profit in their home market. And the fact that they've announced they're coming means they'll get there eventually. It's probably not going to be as fast as announce it and you'll land. But, uh, yeah, we'll... we'll Will this cause more geopolitical issues? I mean, I think they've managed to kind of gain some traction and hopefully they can sort of manoeuvre around Trump because the whole messaging that they've used is that, you know, they're giving, they want to give Chinese consumers access to US products and US goods. And it's all about, you know, getting access to the great, Mm. you know, made in the USA kind of thing. So they're doing it like a export thing. Like it's, It's, it's yeah, they're not coming in trying to steal, you know, Amazon's lunch. Although, you know, Trump would probably be very happy with that. I think the other thing is obviously that, Jeff Bezos said in April that after 10 years of being in China, they're going to be pulling out their, you know, Amazon's going to be pulling out its domestic um, e-commerce business from there. They just haven't been able to gain that traction because Alibaba has such a strong hold mm. in the market there. So this is a great way then, as I say, to kind of get those, those U.S. products to, um, you know, to Chinese consumers without Amazon having to be there. I think it's like it's just showing the ambition of these like massive kind of merchant platforms and there's this sort of monumental battle going on between Alibaba and Amazon slightly different angles but then you've got upcoming from the bottom you've got Shopify that start announced they're doing like merchant platforms yeah. but I think from from like a coconut perspective selfishly uh, to put my own spin on it it's like this is the engine room that's driving self-employment and entrepreneurship you know this facilitation of uh, merchant services uh, mer- uh, selling goods uh, to anybody around the world yeah. that kind of thing and for us it's like the more that this happens, the more we can come in and help with the problems that come out of that. Inevitably, when there's money flowing around, there's yeah. counting and tax. Those platform marketplaces create an economy of their own. So if I'm selling things on Amazon, I have a unique set of problems than if I'm selling them on eBay. And you get these little ecosystems popping up of, of like all of these little service providers, mm. sometimes provided by the likes of Amazon, but a lot of times not. And if that business grows, you have these interesting challenges. Um, there's an interesting nugget in here that there's saying their uh, platform, uh, the Alibaba platform will help US sellers by providing marketing tools to reach specific demographic segments and target customers. Um, and they're also saying it's going to be really helpful to the 61% of American manufacturers who don't presently have a digital presence, as well as the 71% of small businesses that do not sell online. So there's all of these boutiques that aren't selling online that they're going after as like this mm. unserved market. If you think about in their home market, they have experience getting people that have never been online online and helping their businesses scale so there's some expertise that they've got there in the back pocket and this so if i'm um if i'm sitting in a bank in my merchant services division or if i'm coconut i think oh there's something there but i think the the banks the you know the old acquiring banks that would provide services to uh, the likes of small businesses or businesses generally 
this is an interesting strategy to watch and an interesting way to think about small businesses problems uh, dealing with digital I think that's a that's a really good point that actually they because the the question that comes is like how are they going to find all these people that have never used digital because mm. there's a reason they've never used digital but of course they've done it hmm. yeah I mean I think the uh constant march of these guys sort of globally is like say it is unstoppable i think um, trump will definitely do as much as he can to try and sort of dampen it down a little bit but like you say if they position it in a way that it's where it's good for them then you never know right yeah bringing the the american dream you know exporting that to china exactly <laughs> china mm-hmm. <laughs> that was good That's all right scarily good And finally this week, we have a story over on Finextra. So this is Tally launches banking app tied to gold ownership. And I'm going to read this, but I do not understand this. So let's see where we get with this one. So a UK startup Tally has launched an app offering individual banking accounts delivering savings and spending tied to physical gold. So when customers make a deposit through the app, they're buying Tally gold at the global wholesale price, which is kept in a secure vault in Switzerland secretive nice uh, one tally is worth one milligram of physical gold and the value of customers holdings is it accessed through individual tally banking accounts spent through a mastercard debit card uh, so customers can spend anywhere that accepts MasterCard, and customers can use the Tally uh, card abroad with no international trans- uh, transactional fees or fees or foreign exchange. So, what the hell is going on here? <laughs> Why are they not just putting money on a card? It's Why all of this weirdness about gold? It's weird, but there are some people that love gold, um, especially as you know, like the yield curve has been inverting for fun in just about every Western market, which suggests a recession is coming, a recession is coming, a recession is coming. Um, also, you've got a lot of currency volatility. The pound has been really struggling lately, uh, in case you haven't noticed. Some people like to own gold, and this is a digital way to do it rather than mailing it to you and storing it in the mat- under the mattress sort of thing. Uh, I don't know how big the market is. There's other ways to own gold too. Like, why would I own and spend it? I mean, I lost you when you just said some people love gold. Like, I've had Austin Powers in my head that entire sentence. (laughs) I love gold. How many gold teeth have you got? (laughs) I I actually really enjoyed uh, kind of Googling this one because it's it's sort of harking back to the the gold standard. And uh, one of the problems with the gold standard is that there's apparently only ever been uh, something like 230 thousand tons of gold ever mined and so if you try and split it up into tiny denominations there isn't enough money to kind of go around but like even down to the molecular level but um i think one of the points you made around volatility as well because that was something that i went straight to i was like are they selling security mm-hmm. and actually if you look at the price of gold i think in 2000 it was like 386 dollars, and now it's 1300 dollars, and so it's like a 300 percent change mm-hmm. And so when you look at that compared with, uh, you know, the dollar index or whatever, Mm. on a percentage basis, it's It's an inflation hedge, um, especially in a down market. Now, uh, if we are heading to a recession, I mean, Ray Dalio, the legendary investor, um, founder of one of the first uh, hedge funds, put out a a sort of a a note, one of his famous uh, newsletters recently saying, you know, consider commodities like gold. Uh, If the big investors are signaling that, I'm not surprised that other people are considering it 
But again, there are ways to own gold that don't involve using it as my everyday bank account. So it's still weird. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is. But it was also, it's supposed to be like a safe haven asset, right? You just kind of, you, you, you buy it and then you lock it away and then you wait 10 years and you see if it's worth more. Yeah, um, you don't spend it at the shops no. for some crisps, right? <laughs> because it's not, I mean, yeah, it's like how much are you going to make? Then you, I mean, I suppose it's maybe a bit like, it, it would be a bit like um, having, you know, a Bitcoin wallet then in the sense that it, yeah. you've got that fluctuation and, you know, some days you might have more to spend and other days you won't. The there's a big crossover between Bitcoin nuts and gold nuts and gold bugs um, the, mm. because they are quite similar in theory. One's just digital and one's physical but digitized. Nuts. Mm-hmm. Um, Ex- no, expand on that. That wasn't me just shouting nuts. Expand on that. Did you say Bitcoin nuts and gold nuts? Yes, people who are nuts about Bitcoin and people ah. who are nuts about... Oh, is that what you mean? Yeah, no, <laughs> I'm glad you I, clarified I, I, that. I was like, I thought it was a nugget. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Is that a small nugget? Yeah. Is a nut? yeah. <laughs> Here's a nut of Bitcoin. I love that Simon coffee. just thought I wanted to shout nuts. And he was like, <laughs> oh, David's at it again. Um, yeah, no, that's really what I thought. But, but it, you know, we uh, on the... Uh, I, I guess on a positive to this one, you know, we have talked a lot about putting more friction into payments to make people feel, you know, very committed to making spend. Like, is this a way of sort of increasing the friction in these things? Because, I mean, if every time I buy a bag of crisps, I'm like, I'm literally sharing a commodity to get those things. Like, is that, is that maybe well, so a positive no, well, the thing? Is you can spend this thing with Visa and MasterCard. It's just backed by gold that's sitting somewhere. Yeah, so you would spend of- this like it's money. It's just a card front end to gold that's held on the back end well, it, instead of right. well, it, deposits at a bank. Well, it would do, but your balance surely is increasing by the fluctuations in gold. Though, or right? decreasing. So no, you're, or decreasing. Or, but, but I guess trended is that way always, right? So, yeah. I, I mean, that it's, way is up, by the way, thank for you. people who are listening. Uh, yeah, that wasn't, that wasn't great for an audio thing, was it? My bad. <laughs> um, but yeah, like, you know, so the almost to the point that we were saying around, uh, you know, more day traders from a stocks and shares perspective earlier on is if you are risking something by taking it out, and in this instance, me buying crisps at the shop, then, it, it you know, the friction that you have of spending your gold for that as opposed to a pound, that's a pound, that's a pound is different. Isn't it, it? This is why um, the governor of the Bank of England said Bitcoin is not money. Um, gold is not money because I can't use it as a, as a medium of exchange because uh, even though one Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin, its volatility means it doesn't function effectively as a medium of exchange. And also, if it's uh, a fixed supply like gold, then it's in theory, its price would only ever go up over time. So why would I ever spend these things? Yeah. The, the, the other thing that I just think sort of on that point is like, I sort of imagine that when I buy my coffee, someone's there chopping up a bit of gold bullion, right, into a tiny piece. Slicing a flake off. Giving yeah. it to somebody. But actually, there's a trust point here where it's like, as much as you're telling me that my deposits are backed by gold, is where's the gold? I mean, it's not in Fort Knox. It's in a vault in Switzerland, but then really what's happening between, that vault, between <laughs> that vault in Switzerland and the number you see on your app is a lot of contracts and paper moving around. And I think that's the thing. It make, might make you feel good that you've got gold, but you've got a contract that represents the legal ownership of that gold. So it's, it's still not the gold. Um, and then... What I loved about this is, shout out to Jason, uh, he came up with, um, if you're going to market this thing, um, you should just run with a pieces of eight theme and gone all piratey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're not the only one. There's uh, Glint as well. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. there's a few. Right. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I mean, 
this still very much confuses me, but uh, let's see if it's successful. If nothing else, we have learned and that I can just shout nuts and Simon thinks it's normal. <laughs> On that note, that wraps up this week's new show. Thank you so much to our guests for joining us. Uh, Val, where can people find out more about you and Oak North? Uh, well, you can find me on Twitter at Val Christensen or LinkedIn. And if you want to find out more about Oak North, it's oaknorth.com. Very, very cool. Gary, where can people find out more? Um, they can go to us on layby.com, L-A-Y-B-U-Y.com, or email me on groloff at layby.com. Very, very good. Sam, where can people find it more? If you're a self-employed business owner, come and uh, check us out. We can help you with your accounting attacks at getcoconut.com. Very good. Mr. Taylor. Coconut. Um, you can find me, sorry, I've been holding that in for the entire episode, um, at SYTaylor on Twitter or just email me, simon11fs.com, if you have thoughts on unit economics and challenger banks. I want to debate. Ooh, debate away. All right. Um, and for me, you can find me on at David Breer over on Twitter. Uh, what do you think of today's stories? Let us know on Twitter at Fintech Insiders or email podcasts at 11fs.com. You can find us on all of the social medias, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, Periscope, and all of that good stuff. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.